This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, is it good luck, good management? doesn't matter. Alberta's latest budget is good news for Jason Kenney. Social media once again an issue with the situation taking place in Ukraine. Plus, the use of nukes is extremely unlikely, but there is a risk. And if you've got kids and they're worried about it, how do you talk to them about this situation? If you look back, uh, you know, six months or a year ago and said to Jason Kenney, what do you need more than anything else heading into that review? A budget surplus would have been very, very high on the list, but probably something he wouldn't even have dreamed of. And then lo and behold, last week, he got just that. It's not a huge surplus, but it's a surplus. Talk about a reversal of fortune. The timing couldn't be better. So let's walk through just how big of a deal this is, how it happened, and what it might mean for Jason Kenney's future. We're chatting with Ken Bosenkuhl now, who is a professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University and a research fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. Ken, thanks for joining us today. appreciate your time. Good morning, Jay. So, I mean, ob- this obviously is a dream come true for Jason Kenney. He really could not have asked for much more a month out from a leadership review. Yeah, you know, a lot of people are saying it's pure luck. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, nice to be on the receiving end of high oil prices, even if that is... You know, it's been coming for about a year or so, uh, and then exacerbated by the horrible events in Europe. But as I wrote in a piece yesterday, it's not just luck. No. Uh, Jason Kenney, if we, if we would have continued on the spending trajectory of the previous government, we'd still have a 4 to $6 billion deficit this year. Uh, that's thanks to Trevor Toombs' calculations. And, and so I think, I think, as you said earlier, I think what Jason Kenney can say is that not only are, am I the beneficiary of good fortune, but I'm the beneficiary of running a good government, at least if you're a conservative and think government should be smaller. And I think the people voting on his leadership are conservative, and most of them want government to be smaller. So I think he's got a good story to tell. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, both things are true in this case. I mean, there was a lot of really good luck. I mean, a bunch of things came together to create this this perfect storm of, of revenue surging, you know, and a lot of things had to fall into place, and they did. Well, you know, I often say that the job of a political strategist is to string together a bunch of unrelated coincidences and make them look like a grand strategy. Um, so there's certainly there's certainly some of that there. But look, let me let me just reinforce a point I made I made at the beginning. Uh, Ralph Klein, uh, premier that I worked for back when we were still you know doing budgets out of stone tablets. Um, cut spending by 25%. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of people who weren't happy with that, but the reality is most Albertans recognize that he did that, and he remained premier for a long time. Jason Kenney, in the last, since he became premier, has cut spending by about 15% in real per-person terms. That's a real reduction. And many of us, myself included, have long said that, you know, after Ralph Klein left the scene, Alberta started spending like crazy, and it's good for Alberta to get our spending in line with BC, Ontario, and Quebec, which is what he's done. And so, again, if you're a conservative and you think government should be smaller and you think Alberta was spending too much, these are good things. Uh, you know, I acknowledge that there is a university just down the road from where I am that's on strike. There's a lot.
lot of communities that are looking for doctors. So there's no question there's been some pain yeah. uh, as a result of these cuts. But I come back to it. The people he's the people he needs to get on his side in the next month are conservatives and members of the party. And for them, this is a good news story. Well, that's the question, Ken, is, I mean, with all of the the negative baggage he's been dragging around basically since he took over, uh, the infighting within the party and all the different problems that he's faced, is this enough? Is one budget, this? it's a big turnaround, there's no doubt, it's an extraordinary budget. Is that enough to get rid of that bitter taste that a lot of people have in their mouths and say, okay, we'll stick with this guy? Well, I wrote, the first piece I wrote on this was a few weeks ago. I was sort of setting the table for the budget, and I sent it to my editor, and she uh, she immediately sent a note back saying, you're a brave boy, Bozenkul. We're <laughs> 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 defending or hinting that Jason Kenney's going to survive. So I, I don't know the answer. Uh, what, I, what I can say is, is two things. Number one, I think on COVID, and I've made no secret of this, he has been... He has been swinging for the fences in one direction yeah. and swinging for the fences in the other direction. His tone has been completely off. And that has made that has made people angry on every side of the issue. It doesn't matter what side of the issue. I don't think he's made anybody no. happy through this whole thing. And that's a, that's a pretty big baggage to care. But I, as Ken Bosenkuhl, I have been writing about the need for Alberta to get its spending in order for, well, since uh, Ralph Klein left and things got out of control. And so for me, this is a big deal. Uh, I'm glad that Alberta is now delivering a government that's about the same size as BC, Ontario, and Quebec, similar size provinces. And I think it's, I think it's a good move. Um, will that make, you know, I'm sure within the party, there are people that are so angry about the COVID stuff that he will get a negative review. But until now, he hasn't had any or much good to say. And this gives him a one big thing to say. So we'll see. I, I I think the other thing I would say is never underestimate Jason Kenney when it comes to organization. He's probably the most proficient and impressive political organizer, ground organizer in the game in Canada, period. And uh, we've started to see that in some of the constituency associations that he's, you know, uh, put his own people in. And so that's a completely separate issue, but never underestimate Jason Kenney when it comes to organizing. And at the end of the day, the leadership review is a big organizing drive to get people yeah. out who support him. So, you know, uh, those two things make me think that uh, I'm not in the same camp as my editor. I, I think he's got a shot. You know, it's really interesting. I think, you know, the, the case that we'll start to hear, if especially if he survives the leadership review and heads into the next campaign, is the fact that, you know what, the COVID pandemic was a one in a million shot. It was completely extraordinary. No politician handled it perfectly. But if you take a look at the stuff that a typical politician and a typical premier had to manage, look at what I've done. The budget's turned around things. You know, so I think he's going to try and he's going to try and separate a lot of the disaster that's been dragging him around uh, and say that was all COVID related. Now that it's not an issue the way that it was, things will be better. Yeah, I, I don't know if I agree. I think there have been some politicians that have done the COVID stuff correctly. I, the w- people that have done it the worst, in my view, have been Justin Trudeau, who has really over and over you know, sought divisions instead of, uh, instead of unity. Uh, and Jason Kenney, as I said, has been swinging for the fences on yeah. this. But, you know, I think, I think BC and uh, John Horgan, Adrian Dix have done a good job by mostly staying out of the way, letting, the, letting professionals do it. Uh, you know, I think Doug Ford has, has been really bad at times, but he's also been really good at times. He hasn't been consistently bad. No. Um, well, he came out so of the I, gate I, really, really strong. I mean, Ford impressed a lot of people. 
He he did, and then he made some. He he again. I think the big problem here is swinging for the fences. Yeah. I think the the proper thing to do through a pandemic is say we're going to take the best advice and we're going to take care of people as much as we can. We need. I, I wrote a piece about this months ago, just saying we, we we need a government that cares about families and elderly people. And if people feel like the government is taking care of the people that are vulnerable, that's. That, to me, is the most important thing. And, and I think just uh, focusing on economics or focusing on, on illness or focusing on, on the preventative stuff really wasn't helpful. And, and if, if the public feels like the government is just doing the best they can to protect the vulnerable, yeah. that's the sweet spot. And, you know, I'm not a fan of the, of the NDP. You know, everybody knows that. But I think John Horgan largely got the tone right. And the funny thing is, just to go on for a second, the actual policy in British Columbia wasn't all that much different no. than the actual policy in Alberta. It was the tone and and sort of the swing, you know, best summer ever is suddenly swing over there and it's, oh, we made a mistake, swing over there. Uh, and I think that the, the whipsawing um, where Horgan just felt more... Uh, steady hand on the wheel. Good, boring government, and uh, yeah. we could use some. Go- we could use some good, boring government in Alberta for a while. We could use some good, boring everything for a while, Ken. It's absolutely exactly. crazy this world that we're in. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Anytime. Cheers. That's Ken Bosen Cool uh, giving us his take on where we are with Jason Kenny, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this goes. I don't know if this is enough. I don't know if this is a t- uh, enough to save you know, Jason Kenney's political career. I know there's a lot of division within that party. Um, I mean, there, there's, he has two issues that he has to deal with. First of all, he has to survive this leadership review, which is happening on April 9th. And I don't think that's a, a sure bet by any stretch of the imagination. But as Ken said, you know, he only has to impress conservatives on that front, the people within the party. He has to heal enough wounds there, um, get enough votes to survive that leadership review, and then he's got the next challenge that he needs to face, and that, of course, is an election coming up next spring in 2023. And I think the hill to climb there is even bigger than the one he faces coming up next month. And, you know, this budget, is that enough to change the perception that Jason Kenney um, has been a disaster? Facebook, literally, there will be university courses taught about how Facebook has, if not ruined society, damaged it terribly. It's, it's um, I mean, there's all kinds of evidence that's come out, you know, in recent months and years about the damage that Facebook has done in so many different areas. Um, I don't know. We've unleashed a menace on society. That's my opinion, my personal opinion. Other people may think differently, but in my opinion, the damage that has been done by Facebook is something that we're going to have to reckon with long after I'm gone. In the meantime, though, we're talking about what's going on with the Russia-Ukraine situation and the social media and the propaganda and the way that Facebook jumps in, right? Facebook, as we, as I just said, you know, they came out last week and, or this week and said, yeah, we've uncovered dozens of different fake accounts set up just to push pro-Russia, anti-Ukraine propaganda. It's what they do. They've been doing it for a long, long time. Uh, let's get some insight on this with Alicia Wanless now, who's a PhD researcher at King's College, uh, looking at alternative frameworks for understanding the information environment. Also, the director of the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, Alicia, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. 
Hello, Shay. Thanks for having me. Um, just, I mean, I don't think any of us are surprised that uh, what we've seen with uh, Facebook coming out and saying, yeah, you know what, there's all kinds of these fake accounts out there. How, how, how does this happen and, and how does it work? What's the, is it, is it a coordinated operation? Like, how do these accounts suddenly spring up like this? I think it's fairly easy for almost anybody to create an account. Uh, all you need is an email and a cell phone, um, although some of the platforms have started to ban uh, new account creation in Russia. Of course, you might be able to get around that by using VPNs that make you look like sure. you're in a, a different place. Um, but I think really when it comes to social media, again, this is about the users who use it, and it has enabled a form of participatory propaganda, which really allows for real and fake accounts to be used to spread particular messaging. And arguably, it's a lot more effective if those accounts are real, because people do tend to believe the people they know and yeah. trust or who they see to be as similar. But in this case, and, and there are some real, there's no, and you're right, those, those carry extra weight, but they seem to be very effective at creating entirely fake accounts, right, that manage to spread and manage to grow and manage to build a following? Uh, I think more so in the past. I mean, this particular campaign, and again, all I've got to go on is what Meta has reported on it at this point. Um, but really, it's not new to be creating these accounts. Um, the network that was taken down was done by a known operative, so I think it was probably fairly easy for the companies to be able to find. In some ways, the whole operation was a little bit crude. Yes, they used uh, AI to create images, but if you start to look at those pictures, they look really phony. The ears are funny. It doesn't really make sense. Um, and even the trying to hack accounts at this point, after they've been priming the information environment, Russians have been priming the information environment for so long, yeah. this does kind of suggest that the Russians might actually be a bit desperate. They certainly didn't seem to meet their military objectives in a swift invasion or defeat. And so I feel like they're kind of scraping the barrel to try to get some messaging out there. What is the content they're creating? Like, what are we seeing? What, what is the message they're trying to get out there? Again, it's a little hard to say at this point because the reporting that Meta put out didn't didn't show us what the posts were. So taking from what they said, um, these are accounts that claim to be based in Kiev. They were uh, pretending to be news editors. Uh, like some of them are former aviation engineers. Some of it was actually pretty laughable in terms of trying to claim that, you know, high-profile people lost their job or like they were, you know, lower lower working people and they suddenly became the editor of a news site. Um, but chiefly what they tried to do is create news outlets, um, pushing claims that the West had betrayed Ukraine, um, that it was a failed state. I would imagine that they've been trying to position Ukraine as far right, which mm -hmm. is no more so than Russia itself or even some countries in the West. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just basically trying to counter whatever's happening. Um, is there any way that, you know, as a user, because I mean, and, we're, and I'm wondering, you know, especially with some of the videos that come across and things like that, is there a way to actually verify this on your own before you, first of all, believe it, and second of all, and even worse, start sharing it on your own profile? Oh, Shay, I wish people would. Um, <laughs> we all do. <laughs> There are ways to do it. I mean, it's obviously a lot harder to do that if you're watching this remotely from a distance at a conflict situation. And there really does tend to be, uh, I think, a, a reaction for people when they see something that's shocking to want to share it yeah, right away. Yeah. Now, there is an entire community of fact-checkers led by the International Fact-Checking Network that work with the companies. There's also a series of investigators like Atlantic Council's DFR Lab, and they work to verify and content and counter disinformation. So if you're wondering if something is real or not, I would look to those guys first before you think about sharing stuff. 
Um, I think there are some basic things that most users can do to try to keep their accounts um, locked down. So, for example, yesterday there was another attack going around on Facebook Messenger. I had actually gotten it from my cousin, and it was like a link um, that she said, hey, check this out. This is something that I found. And what it does is if you click on that link, um, it will prompt you to go and log in, and then you will be compromised, and then your account is compromised, and it's spread to your friends and family. And that's the real tricky part is that these kinds of attacks are really aimed at compromising a personal network in order to gain further access. And then if you have your account compromised, then it's possible that they can start posting on your behalf. And that seemed to be what the aim was behind the Russian one, targeting Ukrainians. But there have been some new measures put into place, and there's old things that you can do. If this is Facebook in particular, look at locking your friends list down so other people can't see who your friends are, so they can't target them in turn. Um, Check some of the privacy and security reminder settings, especially on things like Instagram. It does look like Facebook's trying to lock profiles now, at least in Ukraine, so people can't see their friends list. Um, And by all means, please be slowing down in terms of sharing content. Wait until somebody like maybe a news media outlet or fact checkers have verified that it's true before you share it. You know, the interesting thing here is the fact that we see so much content coming out and, you know, we all, but you have to really applaud the Ukrainians. Uh, Zelensky, Klitschko, all the MPs are really active on social media. Uh, Civilians, citizens, you name it, they are countering the narrative with social media and building international support that is really remarkable. That's exactly it, Shay, and I think that's the real story here. Not Russia's efforts, but the ability of Ukrainians and Zelensky included to get their point of view across. The Russians have dominated the international information environment for so long. Their narratives have gained traction, but right now what we're seeing is the Ukrainian story really coming to life. And I think that's telling, too, in terms of seeing average Russian citizens go out on the streets and protest. Um, Russian citizens, uh, celebrities, denouncing the conflict. This is really unprecedented. I think key here is to keeping channels like Instagram open, which are really a main way for Ukrainian and Russian citizens to communicate with each other with a shared aim of ending this conflict. You know, when we talk about what Facebook's doing and what Twitter's doing, and I think they are trying to do things, at least they're letting people know that this is happening. Ultimately, it comes down to user beware, right? I mean, they can't possibly police everything that's on there. It falls to the user to be pretty skeptical about what they're seeing. Absolutely. But this is also kind of, I think, a big gap in terms of what governments and industry haven't done. And that's really making end users more aware of what life is like in an information age. You know, it's fundamentally changed and we don't really understand that and we haven't been told. And there is a great responsibility, again, between, I would say, industry and governments to do that. I mean, what I'd really like to see at this point is more outreach from, say, governments, industry, civil society to reach Ukrainian users, uh, including diaspora, to understand that they're using um, the proper safety measures that are available. But I also think there needs to be a multi-stakeholder approach here where civil society is brought in to work with industry to understand what new safety measures need to be put in place quickly. Also working with investigators and fact checkers to speed up assessment of claims to counter disinformation. And I really think, again, here, governments are key with industry to, to understand what policies industry have in place already that can be used to counter disinformation. There's a whole host of reporting features that could probably be better levered in order to be able to curtail abuse here. Yeah, we just have to let people know about it. Uh, Alicia, thank you so much. Great insight. Really appreciate the conversation today. Thank you, Shay. You bet. Thanks so much. That is Alicia Wanless, who is a PhD researcher at King's College exploring alternative frameworks for understanding the information environment.
Continuing with our discussion about the situation uh, in Ukraine. And as you know, we talked about this yesterday. There's a lot of concern in some corners about the risk of nuclear war. How real is the risk? Uh, we know that it's it's there. I mean, it's certainly not zero. Um, but uh, how much of a change in dynamic really came about with Vladimir Putin's statement that um, he would change the alert status of Russia's forces on Sunday. Uh, so we know the risk, you know, isn't necessarily the same thing as a foregone conclusion by any means, but uh, we've heard from experts who say it remains unlikely. Uh, let's get another perspective on that. We're going to chat with Dr. Alan Sens, a UBC political science professor who specializes in armed conflict and nuclear weapons. Um, Dr. Sens, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. What is your level of concern here? I mean, we're hearing so much talk about it. We don't even, I mean, whenever the specter is raised, people get concerned. But is this something that you're worried about, nuclear war? Well, I think there's a couple things to start off with. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit about what the recent announcement by President Putin does not mean. Okay. What it does not mean is that nuclear war is imminent. It does not mean that the Russian military will be using nuclear weapons in Ukraine or anywhere else for that matter. What it does mean is that it is another invocation of Russia's nuclear arsenal by President Putin in his diplomacy surrounding the invasion of uh, Ukraine. And this time, what is significant is that he's moved beyond barely concealed references. In fact, his diplomacy has been quite aggressive to attaching an action item to it. And that action item was the raising of the alert status of Russia's strategic rocket forces. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. He right. wasn't specific. And, of course, there's, there are reasons for him not to be specific. And they could do any number of things moving forward. But the fact that this has been done is a danger, because as we are in the middle of a shooting war, there is now a magnified uh, fear of escalation, miscalculation, or accident that could lead to a nuclear uh, exchange of some kind. Yeah, let's let's take a, a minute or two on each of those. When we talk about escalation, it seems like escalation is already there, but you're talking about um, in specific use, like actually using um, nukes in terms of escalation, right? Well, there are two forms of escalation at work here. The, the first form is political escalation. One of the great concerns was when Putin made this announcement is that the United States would follow suit. Right, exactly. That, that immediately, immediately the United States would, would raise its alert, and that could cause uh, Russia to raise its alert, and we get into this escalation of alerts, which is always very dangerous. The second form of escalation that could occur is that when both sides are in heightened uh, levels of distrust and hostility. Of course, we have a, a shooting war going on. The danger is that there is a mistake or an accident, a misinterpretation or a miscalculation that leads one side or another to believe it is under imminent threat of a nuclear attack. And in those kinds of circumstances, nuclear doctrines around the world, not just Russia's, but also in the United States, uh, argue for launching on warning that you should launch early before an enemy strike hits you and damages your ability to retaliate. And so this is very worrying. 
Um, it, it increases crisis instability, to use the language of, of arms control and nuclear weapons. And that's the last thing you want in a situation that we have now. Have we been down this road before? I mean, we like we know with uh, all the rhetoric and the saber rattling, that all puts us in a situation where you know miscalculation becomes a bigger concern. Is there more room to go down there? Or are we sort of maxed out on this right now? Well, I think we're at the point where you know the, the biggest obvious threat uh, during the Cold War period was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, uh, there there have been other similar crises, many of which are not popularly known, and there have been many um, almost accidents where you know uh, early warning systems went off and and almost triggered um, um, nuclear. Um, a, a nuclear attack. But what we haven't really seen is all these things in combination. Um, and we don't see it here either. Okay. What we have is we have a war going on. We have President Putin, um, again, bringing up the rhetoric of nuclear weapons, warning um, uh, others about Russia's nuclear arsenal, and, and very much with a, a purpose. I mean, his purpose is to deter and to sow division. He wants to deter further support for the Ukraine, political and military, and he wants to try to sow division in the alliance, primarily between Washington and Europe, but also between other countries, hopefully causing some countries to back off, right. to, to, to back off their support for Ukraine, while other countries continue to want to support Ukraine. So he's trying to exert a wedge. He's trying to drive a wedge between the allies and both NATO and non-NATO governments on this point. When we talk about um, nuclear crises, where does like Chernobyl fit in? We know that was one of the first things that changed hands and Russians took it over and there's some concern around that. I mean, there, there, there are nuclear power plants in Ukraine. Is that a concern? It is a concern. Um, and in fact, um, there's been quite a bit of uh, observation about the status of those reactors. Now, Chernobyl was a very interesting case. It, 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 it wasn't deliberately assaulted yeah. for the fact that it's a radioactive zone. It's just you know, on the uh, way. Yeah, it's a, it was in the way. It is part of the um, primary, one of the primary transit routes yeah. between uh, Belarus and Kiev. And so th- that was logical. Uh, the, the nightmare scenario is one of them gets bombed. Right. Um, and, and there's no evidence yet that that has happened. It would be... Uh, uh, crazy act to do it intentionally but of course the worry is something accidental happens or the operations of these plants are compromised in some way and that could lead to accident so this is is a worrying development though of course these are reactors and we're not talking about nuclear weapons here okay last one and i'll let you go and this is uh, the doomsday scenario and we need to remind people that we're talking about something that is highly unlikely by all the experts we've spoken to but if this does get into the worst possible scenario what's the risk that canada carries in terms of a, a nuclear war? Yeah, so there's, there's, it depends on the level. Um, one of the scenarios for nuclear use is a warning shot. So the, the, the fear has always been that one side starts to lose. So in this scenario, something really bad starts to happen to the Russian military effort in Kiev um, and in Ukraine more generally, or uh, Vladimir Putin feels threatened that his regime is, is going to crumble or fall, that as a desperate last resort, They may fire a demonstration shot, I don't know, into the North Sea or something like that, one of the scenarios that has been raised, and that this would be to demonstrate resolve, right, right, to to get other countries to back down. Another scenario, however, is that uh, defeat 
in Ukraine might cause um, accidental or intentional use of nuclear weapons on the ground, try to support Russian tactical maneuver. And if that happens, then we're in a situation where other European countries that control nuclear weapons, namely France, the United Kingdom, are in a position of whether or not they're going to respond. I don't think they would. But now we're looking at the use of tactical nuclear weapons in war in Europe. And from that, if there is a spread of the conflict to other regions and NATO becomes directly engaged, we now have the military forces of NATO in the United States fighting Russia. In that scenario, you could get a wider European war, which could include the use of nuclear weapons. North America might still stay out of that. But at this point, it becomes increasingly likely that we would be dragged in, and in any general nuclear war, which is the final sort of ultimate disaster scenario, Canada is a target. We We have nuclear weapons that are targeted on us right now from Russia as part of Russian war planning. And in that type of doomsday scenario, we would absolutely be in the firing line. Um, you touched on something there that I think people in your position can provide a little clarity for people like me and, and a lot of the people that I've spoken to say, why aren't we doing something? Why don't we provide a no-fly zone over Ukraine? I mean, you're talking, basically all these suggestions that people have, we're talking about World War Three, essentially, right? If you're talking about NATO actively engaging with Russian troops, that's World War Three, for lack of a better term, correct? That is absolutely correct. One of the reasons why the Biden government and NATO governments have been so clear right from the very beginning, they set the red line before anything even started happening. We are not going to send a single soldier combat aircraft to fight in Ukraine. And the reason for that is that if the forces of the United States or NATO come into direct combat with Russian forces on the ground, we are immeasurably closer. It's still not a guarantee, but we are immeasurably closer to the risk of a general war that could escalate to a nuclear war. The whole no-fly zone idea, when that was first raised, I just cringed. Yeah. Because we're used to thinking about no-fly zones as things we do over humanitarian crises because someone's bombing helpless civilians. This is a very different situation because a no-fly zone has to be enforced. It has to be enforced, yes. Yeah. You have to actually shoot down the opponent's aircraft if they violate that zone that you've established. That means you have NATO combat aircraft shooting at Russian Air Force combat aircraft. That's a war, and, and, and that's why in this particular set of circumstances, a no-fly zone is a very dangerous very provocative idea. I really, really appreciate your analysis on that because I hear it a lot and I think it's important to point out that, yeah, that's not as easy as it sounds. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Great stuff. That's Dr. Alan Sens, UBC political science professor specializing in armed conflict and nuclear weapons. So yeah, I mean, we've been talking about nuclear war this week which uh, is a pretty heavy topic, right? I mean, what's heavier? Uh, And again, to stress, what we're talking about here is sort of worst-case scenario, highly unlikely, um, but, you know, if it was low risk before, the risk is still low, but it's a little bit higher. It's not zero. Um, And the situation, as we've heard, and, you know, we've had a few, I think we've had three or four, nuclear experts on the air in the past week or so talking about this. And, 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 and they've all said the same thing, which I think is interesting. It's not necessarily a situation where um, 
somebody starts it intentionally. We're in a situation now where there's so much happening and it's part of the conversation that an accident um, could tip us into an area we don't want to go into. So, I mean, the risk is 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 higher than it was a week ago. That's the bottom line. But that doesn't mean it's imminent or anything like that. And I don't want to panic anybody and I don't want to be accused of, you know, all that. I'm just saying it's there. It's a risk. And, you know, I mean, I've got a, a 22. How old, how old is my kid, Sarah? 20, 21 she's turning, right? She's about to turn. I don't know. She's about to turn 21. And she um, she asked me, you know, what's going on? Are we going to have a nuclear war? I mean, she was worried about it. So uh, I can only imagine what it's like if you have younger kids. So let's see if we can get some help with that. We're going to chat with Nicole Racine, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in psychology at the University of Calgary. Uh, Dr. Racine, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. Happy to be here. You know, when we talk about I mean, let's just start off. Should we be talking about what's happening in Ukraine with kids? I mean, they've just come through COVID and everything that that brought and that now nuclear war. I mean, what's the best way of handling this with kids? Yeah, so this is actually something we've been asking ourselves a lot, um, both as parents uh, and as psychologists. And I think the answer to that is is yes, um, in, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I think it would be near impossible at this point for kids not to have heard about it in some way, shape, or form, whether it's at school or from just picking up, you know, um, the TV being on and things like that. So we think it's important to be able to have conversations with them uh, because actually talking about something helps us feel less distressed. So there's yeah. a lot of research that shows that, you know, when you're able to actually talk something through with someone, you feel better after um, and so, you know, that's one part that's really important. The other is uh, because of the world that we're living in with social media, misinformation is a huge problem, uh, and especially on platforms like TikTok that kids are often, or Snapchat which, that kids are often on. And so I think you want to be able to have conversations with them, too, where you can kind of clear up some misconceptions and, um, you know, be open and honest and then, you know, this is also part of building um, abilities to have these conversations with your kids, because I think what we're learning is, unfortunately, these types of challenging world events, uh, we keep having them. Yeah. And so, you know, this idea that we want to be able to uh, encourage our kids to come to us and have open and honest conversations with them is, is important. What about, you know, making this age appropriate? Like I say, I've got a a 20-year-old who, you know, is a kid to me, but, I mean, basically is an adult, but has questions. Entirely different than somebody who has a a 5-year-old or a 6-year-old who comes home from school and says, I heard about this, what's going on? I mean, how do you sort of tailor it to an age-specific discussion? Yeah, So, and this is, I think, probably the most important part. And... What we and it's hard to know, right? Because different children uh, might have different understandings. But certainly, I would say for you know the five or six year old and under, you don't want to give them too much information because if they have information that they can't understand, it's going to be scary for them. Sure. And they don't really have um, the ability to kind of say like, okay, well, you know, the likelihood of this is really low for me, or actually we live quite far from the Ukraine, right? A five or six year old, their understanding of that is less. So for kids that age, we recommend, uh, actually they might ask you a pointed question and you can answer it. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to go above and beyond. And you might consider asking them what they know about it, uh, because that can help you to kind of clear up, 
maybe anything, any misinformation that they have. So they can say, oh, you know, what have kids at school been saying or what did your teacher yeah. say and kind of get them to explain. A kid who doesn't really want to talk about it, no problem. Uh, you don't need to have an in-depth conversation with a younger kid who, you know, maybe they're not as phased by it. Whereas with a, an older, uh, you know, school-aged or adolescent, uh, then I think, you know, it's more appropriate to um, have a more in-depth discussion, answer their questions, and really uh, normalize how they're feeling, especially if they're feeling worried or scared. Because that's a normal way to feel right now. Many adults are yeah. having a hard time. Uh, so normalize that and, you know, validate their feelings. And, you know, maybe think about, okay, what are some things we can do as a family to help, you know, distract or keep ourselves kind of busy during this time? Um, is there any value in it? I think, you know, having raised kids and being around people who raise kids, sometimes we get into the mindset, like, this has never happened before. What's, what I'm going through is entirely unique. Um, and is there any value in remembering, you know what, lots of generations have been through th- this exact same situation. There are ways, you know, I mean, they've survived. Kids have been through this before. Like, we aren't... I, you know, I'm not trying to minimize it in any in any stretch of the imagination, but just to say, you know what, we've been here before in some ways, and we, we managed to make our way through it then. I think that's a really important point and something for us to consider. I actually live in an intergenerational household, so we have uh, the grandparents around all the time. Yeah. And they were actually mentioning, you know, as kids, they were trained to hide under their desks, uh, you know, for bomb threats and things like that. And I think uh, what that brought up for me was really a a reminder that this isn't the first generation of kids uh, who are growing up with, you know, war and civil unrest. This has been part of our history uh, for a very long time. And like you said, it's not to minimize it. Uh, but it's more that, uh, you know, these are things that happen. We can have open conversations about it. I think what's different now is uh, in the past, maybe you heard the news on the radio, you know, once an evening it showed up on the cover of the newspaper every day, uh, but it wasn't constant and perpetual news uh, at your fingertips that can be available on a smartphone or, you know, stre- streaming news, et cetera. Yeah. And so that's the part I think we need to be more mindful of for exposure uh, for kids uh, because a lot of the content that's uh, visual, some of it's really graphic, uh, and it's not that we want to turn a blind eye, but at the same time, uh, I think uh, it's stressful to have constant exposure to that. Yeah, absolutely. I think for all of us, it is no doubt. Uh, Dr. Rosine, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're well, most welcome. That's Dr. Nicole Racine. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.